Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Traxler and Carolyn Ford to explore the latest in government cybersecurity news and trending topics. Now, let's get to the point. Hi, everyone. Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity. I'm Carolyn Ford, joined by Eric Traxler. How are you doing, Eric? I'm doing great. Great. Have well, a good to, morning to you. Yeah, you too. Today, we have Mike Epley, Chief Architect, Public Sector at Red Hat. Mike has been helping the U.S. defense and national security communities use and adopt open source software over the last two decades with practical experience as a software developer and enterprise architect. And today, we're going to discuss secure information sharing and the role of cross-domain security in doing that. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Thanks for the intro. Yeah, welcome to the show. And we were just talking skiing as we uh, were prepping to get started, which was great. Indeed, ski season is approaching and making plans already. Well, welcome to the show, Mike. Let's just jump right into cross. Let's get cross to the domains. point. Let's get there to cross domain security and uh, how you're seeing it being used throughout government and even in commercial. What's it all about, Mike? Sure. Well, uh, for the people that aren't used to working in these environments, you know, cross-domain and cross-domain technology really is uh, the ability for us to enable uh, working in what we would typically call a restricted or air-gapped uh, environment. Uh, and in order to do so, we often have to transfer information, data, software, and other systems from open networks. Uh, think of, you know, internet accessible resources onto these restricted networks. Um, and to do so, you know, we've uh, over the years and the DOD and intelligence communities have been doing this for quite a while, developed a lot of specialized technologies to enable that. A lot of these specialized technologies are kind of hardware based. So typically, uh, you know, we have boxes that have paired diodes and photoresistors and they take advantage of the physical properties of these systems. So data can only flow in one direction. Uh, matter of fact, we often call these diodes because of that, you know, in the Distant past, uh, we also use CDs or other types of media. For example, you know, CDs you can write to once and then you can walk them across the, uh, the gap and then read those CDs. Uh, Mike, what it, we call SneakerNet, yeah. right? Absolutely. Uh, as a matter of fact, SneakerNet is colloquialism and, and unfortunately a painful uh, one from my own memory. Uh, I've SneakerNetted many, many, many CDs over my years. Uh, and in fact, I've had lots of experience doing this kind of cross-domain development, uh, including some humorous examples. So when I was a, a software engineer at Lockheed and uh, I had to do some cross-domain development, but I didn't have access to the restricted network because of classification reasons. Well, I'm, uh, and, I'm told yeah. that that's still a thing, sneaker net. It is. And, uh, you know, people have and developed lots of workarounds from this. So this, uh, back when I was at Lockheed, for example, I had, my manager had access and I didn't. So he would go into the, the skiff and, I literally was yelling instructions at him through the wall and uh, hoping he would be able to type in what uh, I wanted him to. He didn't know any software or software development. Uh, and then he would try and yell back what he saw on the screen through the wall. And uh, we did that for about six months. And uh, We got maybe a handful of lines of code written in six months because of that. Uh, Is that legal? So that wasn't even sneaker net. That <laughs> yeah. was kind of, uh, that, that was like a uh, relay race where you pass the baton. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's a, uh, you know, sneaker net would have been a luxury, right? I could have actually gone into the skiff at the time, but it's, no, it's, I wouldn't, you know, these are security restrictions can be quite onerous. 
Too bad Garmin and Fitbits aren't allowed in the environment because you could actually track how many miles you're walking from one network to another over the course of the day. Anyway, yeah. so there's so there's tech that that helps make that go away, which is which helps in development environments. Okay, wait, Eric, you just said something that I didn't realize. These networks are physically really, really far apart. No, but if you're walking from one to another, you're walking to the scan station. You'd be mm-hmm. amazed how many how many steps you get when you go from your desk to the scan station, which is probably not near your desk. It could be hundreds of feet away or more, different floor even. You scan it, right, which is typically an AV scan, in the, in, at least in the old days. There isn't much more. I don't want to get into too much more detail. Then you've got to take it into the skiff or wherever you wanted to take it, which could be, honestly, it could just be going from one network to another. It could be two different laptops on your desktop even or two workstations. But you got to walk to the scan station with your CD. So you add up the miles. You add up the steps. Yeah, and we can thank uh, the GSA for planning out the parking lots so they're exceedingly large at some of these facilities. So yeah, you, you do log some miles, I think. Well, so... Anyway, there's a better way to do it, Carolyn. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I, I guess I'm curious as to how or why SneakerNet is still a thing if, if cross-domain solutions solve that. Mike, to you. Yeah, well, I, I think it's still a thing because uh, even with some of our newer and more advanced technologies, uh, they can still be cumbersome to use. And uh, these are typically, like I mentioned earlier, kind of specialized hardware devices. They're uh, taking advantage of these physical properties of like diodes and foot resistors. And there's few of these in a typical enterprise. So there are kind of high priority uh, protected enterprise resources that are carefully managed. And not everybody gets to use these resources. And typically, you know, these things that are permanently uh, added to your network, two things, right? They're, you know, they're enterprise resources, typically reserved capacity for certain use cases. You know, you're streaming data into these uh, networks for analysis or other purposes. Uh, so to have other workloads or other users on these systems uh, have to be you have to man- manage that priority and make sure that you're not uh, uh, stopping mission uh, data from crossing over that network. Plus, as a, you know, if you're talking an air gapped or restricted network and you're adding a link between that and the open network, and that represents a security risk and security vulnerability. So again, they have to be carefully managed and protected to make sure that, you know, that that connection point doesn't uh, turn out to be a disadvantage or security weakness for you. Yeah, the worst thing would be to let a adversary through that you know, onto what's considered a secure network, which is no longer secure, right? That's a gap they can cross. That would be a bad thing. Exactly. So, Mike, we, we, we were talking security. All- yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, and that's why, of course, security in these situations is paramount. And, uh, yeah. you know, uh, Eric, you mentioned, you know, in the olden days, you know, it would be an AV scan or something like that. And, uh, you know, we uh, have to be careful. You know, an AV scan is just one step in that process of uh, crossing that boundary. Correct. And you mentioned as we were talking before the show started, um, you're seeing a lot more need in the commercial space, especially post-COVID with work from home and everything. But you're seeing corporations, commercial corporations, actually set up air-gapped and separate networks. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you're seeing even across the commercial space, and there's several industries, I think, where this is particularly true. Uh, where you know they're learning the lessons from the DoD and IC about how to protect their networks, implement uh, 
you know, uh, stronger perimeter security, which is essentially what, you know, these restricted air, air gap networks represent, uh, uh, more defense in depth. And yeah, they're, they're taking the, those concepts to, you know, increase their security and, and boundaries because they've got uh, standards like PCI or HIPAA or things like this that require higher levels of protection than they once were used to. And they were looking for solutions to how to, how to uh, do that. And, you know, the, the DOD, the intelligence community, they've been implementing these technologies uh, for a long time. Now, they have other requirements and, of course, huge workforces and all that that have access to these restricted networks. But even in the DOD and IC, they're, they're trying to, uh, again, in the name of security, move their workforces uh, into these lower domains and only bring in, again, that's a need to know or uh, uh, other other goals to limit access to those restricted networks, either by people or technology, so that they can, again, improve their security uh, footprint. So who are you seeing in the commercial world? I think you mentioned financial. Are they? Yeah, I think the financial services uh, have been leading that. Uh, and mostly because, you know, the financial services industry, they've got a lot of resources and assets to protect. And they're a huge target. So there's lots of threats. And of course, it's a highly regulated industry. And so to meet a lot of the security requirements that either uh, industry bodies or laws and regulations require, you know, they've had to increase their security defenses. Yeah, critical infrastructure, Carolyn's another area, energy, oil and gas, um, critical manufacturing. Are Some we good seeing, examples we're seeing a lot of adoption there? Or are they hitting challenges or roadblocks that's making it? Uh, prohibitive for them? Well, I think, you know, a lot of the challenges and roadblocks that you're seeing are the same kind of challenges and roadblocks that uh, you see any kind of uh, DOD and IC environment where we've been doing this for a long time. Uh, and, you know, the, the challenges for air gap security and cross domain security have been always that, you know, there's a lot of friction in the process there. And mm-hmm. I talked about having these highly specialized cross domain guards and solutions and things like that. And of course, all these, uh, extra kind of controls that you have uh, in that transfer process, you know, they, they make it difficult to manage. Uh, there's a lot of governance and control and rules that you have to follow. Uh, so, you know, whether it's, you know, limiting the number of people who have access to those systems or the actual just delay or uh, extra level of effort that's required to use those systems. So, you know, if Eric talked about walk, like, you know, we talked about the, uh, literally walking down the scan station, you know, and that might add, you know, 30 minutes uh, round trip plus another 30 minutes to scan something, you know, and then these days, especially where we're trying to do, uh, you know, agile development, rapid cycles and things of that nature, you know, even just those types of delays can often be uh, just too burdensome. Plus, you know, to actually implement these uh, specialized cross domain tools, you know, it's a lot of extra infrastructure to manage. Uh, you have to, of course, uh, do this across multiple domains, and as I mentioned, that you know it's a it's a weak point in your security perimeter. So you have to be very careful about how you do that, uh, and you're going to have limited people, limited resources in which to do that with. Although, same thing with the scan station. I mean, I remember burning two CD, or bringing a CD in from the outside, walking down. You get basically a virus scan. We won't go into more details, but. You're not getting the same level of inspection you can get from a cross-domain system. You then walk it to the desktop, you, you upload it to the higher side network, and then you can let someone know or do something with it. Uh, but there's still, there's still risk there. In fact, there may, I would argue there's more risk, but 
I, I can't imagine doing it all the time as a developer. You know, every time you have to make code, Mike, I, I, I certainly can't re- imagine yelling through the wall into this gift to somebody who's not a developer, who's not with you. I mean, that, that just, that's a phenomenal story. Yeah, and actually, that's, I mean, that's exactly what we're trying to do with modern cross-domain solutions, though. You know, we're essentially trying, you know, we've got a software developer in a in an open network, and we're, he's, you know, the analogy is he's yelling across while he's throwing software, throwing content across that cross-domain solution, and just kind of crossing his fingers and hoping that it works or that it, it does what he hopes it does. Uh, and I think that's where the, the solution is, uh, which is to figure out ways that we can provide higher quality assurances that what he wants, in fact, gets across that boundary and then works as intended. So you mentioned burning CDs, Eric. I mean, does the cross-domain solutions prevent things like Lady Gaga CDs from being burned? (laughs) (laughs) You know, know, the answer is, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're these, uh, even these scan stations, you know, they will uh, uh, examine the media and look for potential uh, weak points in that media. So multi-track CDs, for example, you could hide data in a second track. Mm. Uh, you can hide data in the index uh, that's burned onto the CD and things of that nature. And, you know, specialized tools are needed to scan for those items and check potential issues like that. And that's what cross-domain would do. It would give it that deeper level of inspection and prevent something like that from happening? Yeah, modern cross-domain technologies, especially ones that are implemented with uh, you know, specialized hardware and software systems as opposed to like a CD. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, they can definitely do those deeper level inspections. And even more importantly, they can uh, do those things out of, bound, uh, out of band from what the user sees. So the user might just see you know, a, a simple file transfer, but that file might be held by the cross-domain system uh, during that scan process and then examined by dozens or hundreds of different tools or even saved or snapshotted so that uh, uh, security analysts can then take a deeper inspection and deeper look at that, even to the point where, you know, they might take that software, say they detect potential malware, and they might actually run a, you know, a specific malware analysis against that uh, particular transfer to make sure it's safe and that uh, they can either alert it or hunt down the source of that malware uh, after the fact. So how do we get broader adoption of cross-domain? You mentioned the challenges and the reasons that it's not being ad- adopted. How do, we, how do we make it so it can be more broadly adopted? Well, I think, you know, it, you know one of the big things that's caused uh, some of these systems to be limited in adoption is the fact that they are specialized uh, enterprise resources. And so the more we can take these enterprise and specialized resources and implement them using commodity systems, technology is hard. And even more importantly, software-only solutions, we don't need to invest in specialized hardware. Uh, We can actually make the the deployment and use of those much broader. And there's a number of technologies out there today which uh, are either have nice properties for doing so or or are actively being used in that. I think also the the real payoff is there are areas like Tactical Carolyn where you're doing the same thing over and over and over again, like position navigation, timing data, and things like that, where you want it to be an automated, seamless, rapid process, mm. right? So it, it makes sense to put it in there. You accredit the system and you move on. Um, yeah, I, I think those are some great examples. I really would love though, Mike, as a, as a developer, I'm not a developer. Carolyn, I don't think you're a code mm-hmm. writer. <laughs> no. Um, 
you might have been in your past, I don't know, but I, I've never been a developer. I'd love to know what that experience is, developing low and moving high, especially with work from home. I mean, how do the people you interface with day-to-day at Red Hat, your customers, you know, they're working from home. I'm assuming they're writing some level of code at home periodically. How do they deal with that? And then get it back to the to the IC or the DOD organizations they're supporting. Yes, yeah, uh, interesting that you asked that because uh, you know over my tenure as a software developer, uh, I actually worked mostly on these protected and high side classified networks, and uh, that's because the difficulty and the the friction that the cross domain challenge presents is actually pretty pretty hard to surmount. You know that. That is a is a huge challenge, and not a lot of people have solved it. Uh, and so just develop on the high side, and then it's easy. You don't have to cross any boundaries. You're just in the environment you're developing, and you're going to work in. Yeah, absolutely. And and honestly, you know, those that bar to to doing that cross domain development, you know, for years was so high that you know, system integrators, software developers, uh, you know, integrators would just accept the fact that it was so hard, and they would hire and train. And get cleared and and get resources into these environments, and they, that's where their primary work location would be. Uh, even though it was more expensive, that it was hard to find people, that it slowed down development. You don't have access to the internet. You can't just you know Google uh, something to find the answer. Uh, and they would just accept that because it was still easier than doing the cross domain. How does cloud play in cross domain, or does it? <laughs> Uh, yeah, cloud definitely uh, plays in cross-domain. And I mentioned a second ago, like uh, software-only solutions and mm-hmm. being one big enabler for that. So if you had a software-only cross-domain solution and you had cloud environments and cloud resources, you could take advantage of that you know, cross-domain solution uh, in software on those cloud resources and not have to deploy hardware. I mean, right now, if you had to implement a hardware-based cross-domain system, you can't do it in the cloud unless you own that cloud yourself. You know, you can't just, well, Amazon is probably changing this, but uh, where you can have private clouds in your own data centers. But uh, you, know, you typically can't put uh, hardware in somebody else's data center. Uh, you're right. Less, you, have to be the, <laughs> you have to be the cloud service provider, basically. Exactly. Which is good. There are good, a lot of good options out there for developers. So, yeah, so what does so, the future look like? I mean, like, go down the road a little ways. I mean, wh- what would you like it to look like? What do you think it looks like from a developer's perspective? Yeah, well, I mean, I mentioned, you know, those those boundaries are really high and it and it does have, you know, that all those frictions cause a lot of challenges and that makes things more expensive and slower. You know, and we're seeing software development move into a world where, you know, it's rapid deployments, it's CICD, it's very agile uh, and we want faster. I mean, as a software development or a developer, you know, that's what I want. I want to be able to make a change, compile it, run it, test it, deploy it, see how it works and then Iterate. Change, it change it again, iterate on that, right? Exactly. And, okay. and of course, uh, the reason why we need cross-domain solutions for this is, you know, if you're testing on these restricted networks against restricted data that uh, you don't have access to, you know, you have to be able to transfer that software. Uh, you have to be able to do those builds and tests and deployments uh, on those restricted networks, even though you don't have access to those uh, environments. Have you seen it get better over time? I mean, have things become more fluid? Uh, they're definitely getting better. And I think, okay, you know, before we started uh, this conversation here, you know, you, you mentioned several prime examples of programs and, and people that are doing that. 
and it is getting better. And, and that's being driven by uh, some of the recent changes in kind of the workforce and environment. And, uh, and of course, that competitive pressure. You know, I mentioned, you know, it's expensive and it's slow. And, and of course, the, the people that can solve that problem uh, are going to have a competitive advantage, especially as, you know, that private sector uh, IT and, and software and systems get better uh, and they can typically pay more. They have better career advancement opportunities for software developers and are generally more attractive and funner places to work. And so, uh, you know, the, the DOD, the intelligence communities, the uh, people that operate in these restricted environments have to, if they want to compete with that private sector for, for talent and for people, they have to be able to do this better. Well, well I, sorry, Eric. We're, no, go ahead. Well, I was going to wrap it up, but if you have one more question. Well, we were, we were talking about with COVID time, right? A lot of people are working remotely these days. We, we were talking before, mm-hmm. the, before the show. And in the examples you gave, Mike, I mean, you, a developer could literally go to the beach, they could go skiing, they could go somewhere, continue working during the day in a new spot, and then submit their code, move it through, move it up to the high side, have people work on it, test it, or, or come back for that piece. But they can work from wherever. We can take a lot, take advantage of a lot more of the workforce, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, and you know the COVID work from home and quarantine kind of environment uh, is really pushing. I think people, ever, you know, even faster to kind of figure out the technology approaches because they are forced to. You know, uh, right? They've had a workforce that was used to working in these restricted environments for a long time, and they literally have to solve this problem overnight, or uh, they won't be able to get their mission done. And so they are working very hard to figure out how to do that. And, and I mentioned, you know, so, you know there are modern technologies uh, that we can turn to to help solve these challenges. Yeah, I was reading an article. I think it was in the New York Times, Carolyn, over the weekend. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, a lot of the Silicon Valley companies, their, their developers, their people are moving. Right? They want to get out of the Bay Area because of COVID, because of the mm-hmm. cost of living and everything else. And the author was pointing out one of the inherent benefits is there's an entire component of the country that they haven't been tapping from a workforce perspective, right? And I almost feel like with some of these initiatives in the, on the DOD and the IC side, the, you know, the gray box with NSA and, and some of the others, there's a whole workforce we're not tapping that might be interested in serving the country if they could do it more easily. Yeah, and it sounds like um, it's, we're, we're getting there. So you know how I love to end on a high note. So. Thank you very much, Mike, for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. It was a great conversation. It was great. Great getting yeah. the developer's perspective. Yeah. You're one of the first developers we've had on, I think. Well, I like to think I'm a developer, but I honestly don't cut, touch much good these days. <laughs> but you represent, Mike. You represent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Bye, guys. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Google Play Store. 